Welcome back to Sound Thoughts on Art, an audio series from the National Gallery of Art. I'm Celeste Headley. When we engage with art, it kickstarts our five senses. We hear music or feel the beat of a drum in our chests. We see the vivid colors of a photo. We take in the three dimensions of a sculpture. We savor the taste of fine food. Sometimes you can smell the carved wood or the smeared oil paint. But when there's crossover, when a piece of art activates multiple senses and they begin to interact and intertwine, that's when things really get interesting. When we listen to melody, what images flash through our minds? When we study the brushwork in a painting, what do we hear? This podcast lives in that crossover, in the space at the center of our five senses Venn diagram. In each episode, you'll learn about a work at the National Gallery and you'll hear a musician respond to that work through sound, creating a dialogue between the visual art and music. Sound Thoughts on Art delves into our personal relationship with art and the unique response we have to beautifully made things. In this episode, we once again tackle a story dating back to ancient mythology, but its themes as ever prove applicable to the modern era what it means to tell the truth, to whistleblow, to face indifference while in an emergency, and to witness collateral damage that might have been avoided. Liakuan was, as far as we can tell, not a real person. But in Greek mythology, he's a tragic figure, a Trojan priest who warns his compatriots in the city of Troy not to accept a large wooden horse from the Greeks with whom they were at war. Source texts vary on which god he might have angered by speaking up, maybe Athena, maybe Poseidon, and why they were so mad. It might have been the gods were angry at Liaquan for something unrelated. It may have been that the divine game was rigged against Troy. But for whatever reason, the gods sent serpents after not only Liaquan, but his sons as well. So what lesson are we supposed to take away from this brutal act of supposedly cosmic justice? It's surely a different lesson now than it would have been in the early 1600s when a painter now known as El Greco took a crack at depicting the death of Laocoon. It's a huge painting, and the dark, chaotic scene would have been especially arresting for a viewer used to post-Renaissance cleanliness and order. Jazz violinist Jenny Scheinman grew up appreciating this painting and the way it explores beauty in the same strokes of telling a deeply ugly story. She finds that contrast lends itself both to feeling and to music. Throughout this episode, you'll hear not only Sand Dipper, the track that Jenny chose for us to discuss, but also The Audit and July 10th in 3-4. All three are tracks off her 2012 album, Mischief and mayhem. So, as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm getting this wrong, when the National Gallery contacted you about the possibility of being here, (laughs) you were were just on your way to DC to, to visit DC. And so you extended your trip for a day and went and spent a day at the gallery. Is that all right? That's correct. Yeah, you're wandering through the galleries. Tell me about that day. 
That was such a wonderful day. This is mid-pandemic. This is after... Uh, when was that? It was So I was in D.C., I believe, to do... Um, we were headlining the D.C. Jazz Festival, and that was a celebration of jazz violin. Um, I was with Regina Carter and the String Queens, and we were playing out on the docks, and we were celebrating our heroes of jazz violin. Very um, ecstatic concert. I extended my trip by a day, and this is after not playing for, uh, I don't know, I guess it had been uh, over a year. I haven't not played, I hadn't not played for over a year since I started playing since the first four years of my life. Wow. You know, it was a total shock to the system. What I mean is, is performing, because I, I actually, I did play during the pandemic, but I was so grateful to be there and be out of my hometown, to be in D.C., and so I was filled with that, just the community of D.C. and the, the everything that live performance fills me with. And so that day, I extended my trip to be able to spend the whole day at the National Gallery. And I went over there by myself with this, with an agenda, which was to walk into the gallery and try to listen to what music came into my mind as I looked at the paintings and the art that was there. So tell me about when you first saw the El Greco. What did you feel? I felt some sort of, it's a huge environment that's created in that piece. It's hard to put it into words and that's why the music and art does it better. It's this sort of unknowable awesome confusion and unknowable world that's created. Leakawan is looking up into life. You know, it's his last glimpse of life before this serpent bites him in the neck. And he's asking, what is this? I don't think he looks terrified. He looks like he's wondering it's like the human mind there looking up and saying this is it and it's still unknowable and his sons are right next to him there's these two gods on the on the right side of the painting sort of looking down at him not answering it's like that you know what we're doing in art is sort of addressing and reflecting this unknowable but very compelling world and it's a big feeling I got when I looked at that painting and it's because I was thinking about music it it seemed it, it's a subject that I often go to when I'm writing which is reflect and create um, the unknowable and the experience that we're all in in life, which is that we can't really explain it, but we keep going through it and there are things that don't make any sense um, at all to us, you know, but it's huge and magnificent and very beautiful. It's a very beautiful painting. I was struck by um, 
the horse in the middle of the painting. And, you know, I only later, you know, I, I, I grew up with the Greek gods a bit. And, um, you know, I'm also Jewish, though we weren't, we weren't observant. But, you know, I, I'm a bit immersed in the idea of, of the God world as very human, meaning it uh, doesn't make sense, hard to explain, impulsive, um, feels like betrayal a lot of the time, emotional. Um, you know, the Greek gods can be can be like that. And what I saw in the horse, which is sort of trotting away in the distance, but it's central to the painting. It's right in the middle of the painting. It's this little regular little horse going back toward Toledo. And um, it seemed like yet another version of sort of betrayal, of not answering the question. And... Um, it is actually the, I think he was probably putting it in there because it's the Trojan horse, but uh, which is central to the story of Laocoon. To me, it looked like um, the regular, uh, a regular part of life, horses being sort of, you know, a, a important part of normal life probably at that time and it's just trotting away it's the companion trotting away it's another betrayal for more on el greco we turn to jonathan bober he's the curator and department head of old master prints for the national gallery of art well there are figures in all sorts of tortuous postures um, the principal one is an older man who's reclining back on the ground, but in a rather awkward posture. Um, to either side are younger men, uh, contorted, contorted and sort of organized in a rather elegant pattern around his fall. And then off to the right are three, two figures, clearly visible, entirely visible, behind them a third head, and all the figures are naked. They are bathed in a very uh, bright and kind of pale, high-key light. The background, in the background, there is a city uh, extending across the horizon on a hillside. Beyond it, a darkened sky with very bright cloud, as if illuminated by moonlight. And that bright light is very much the same kind of light that bathes those figures in the foreground. So it's a very, uh, very intense, a very complex weave of figures that almost entirely fills uh, the foreplane, the front of the composition, with this rich and varied and deep-toned background. And the whole surface seems, as I say, vibrant with this light. I think most people who see pictures of this in books may not appreciate the, the size of this. Well, as frequently, if whether you're sitting in an art history classroom looking at used to be slides, now projections, images of any kind in books, scale, as well as, of course, the material characteristics, is in a way the most elusive. Um, and the better the reproduction in a book, the more th the assumption tends to be that's what it looks like. And we experience the reproduction rather than the work itself. It is a large canvas. It's about six feet high and almost seven feet wide. So very, very impressive. The figures are not life-size, but they're approaching the kind of scale that one feels a, a more visceral uh, identification with them. 
I mean, nature is often indifferent to our suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nature just goes on. Yep. And the sky is indifferent and awesome and powerful and doesn't give any answer, you know, to what's happening to Leakawan and his sons there on the ground as they're being attacked by serpents that were sent by the gods. One of the things that, that both visual and, and music have in common is that very often they are expressing the unexpressible. In other words, mm-hmm. oftentimes when I look at El Greco, I try to imagine what it would be like, because Leakawana was right. Next to him is the body of his dead son, and he's looking up. It looks like he's looking up at his son who is also about to die. Mm-hmm. And so... What do you feel like is the mood? Do you think there's grief here? Frustration? Injustice? I don't see grief in it. I, I'm sure some people do. You know, I, I mean, I, I read a little bit about it, and there's a lot of talk of, you know, a world of suffering, you know, all of this. And, okay, they are being attacked by serpents, and his sons are about to die right in front of him. And he's right. It's so unfair. There's no justice in this depiction of the world. There's and the gods are just watching. And the gods look young. They're like these, these, I think it's supposed to be Apollo and Artemis. And then there's some sort of figure of something else in there. They're uncompassionate. I think he's, he's, there's a question in his face. I think he's saying why? I mean, there's still a tenderness in his face. Um, He doesn't have a face of agony. And I mean, honestly, I see him looking up at the sky. I don't know if his gaze is directed exactly at his son. Um, You know, that's, I suppose, a matter of interpretation. He's leaning back on one of the sons that's, that's closer to death, probably. Um... But it's so unfair. You know, it's so unfair. He, uh, you know, he saw the destruction of Troy. He knew that the Trojan horse was going to come in. You know, it was treacherous. It was a ruse. And he was able to say that, but he was punished for it. It's a kind of disloyalty or or betrayal that hurts a lot that hurts in the in the that juxtaposition do you think if you were the sound designer for this painting (laughs) what sounds would you assign to it um very interesting question um because of course our pretext here is relation of, of image and sound, image and art and music. That I am, uh, as I've confessed openly, and why the pairing with Jenny Scheiman is so welcome to me, I am a jazz um, fan, aficionado. Um, what I see in it is the overwhelming characteristic of it is a vague vagueness of specific information, leaps of space, irrational leaps of space and movement, compositional movement in the painting, 
But all that brings to my jazz-obsessed mind a work or music that is more rhythmically insistent, that is even polyrhythmic, um, where there's no clear or simple tonal center. I see, I feel, in the recording I imagine that might accompany this, you talk about sound design, the space is so deep, but the connection between that foreground patterning of the figures and that depth so unclear and some of the transitions so abrupt, I think of a recording that is particularly big in space, whether actually recorded in a huge studio or a concert hall, uh, but one in any case that would have a lot of reverberation, a lot of reverb, and one would feel a lot of space in the sound design. So movement and space, sort of critical characteristics in, in what I hear looking at it synesthetically. In what ways is this work very like El Greco style? Oh, well, precisely the, uh, the filling of uh, that front plane with figures, with the action, um, their organization into complex and what looks to our eye, especially to a, a 16th century standard, organized according to what seems a, an arbitrary kind of pattern. The figures are extremely dis distended, um, almost deformed by their movement and their organization into this rhythm. And that kind of electric light, all of those things are typical of Greco. Uh, something that is very, uh, seems to our eye, um, irrational and against the grain of so much of Renaissance representation in its rationality, in its clarity, in its clear and plausible construction. Greco seems something straight out of the imagination and um, highly expressive, expressively charged, way beyond any specific facial expression or even gesture. The work itself and how it behaves formally convey a feeling that still affects us. And that is all very typical of Greco and part of why he's so admired, has been so admired for the past century or so, and why he struck, well, those coming out of expressionism in the early 20th century. He seemed, still seems, a kind of precursor or allied with that approach or that priority. So tell me about the connection between your response to this painting and the music that I you chose. I immediately, when I saw this, got a song in my head that I've recorded, and it was on an album that I released with my band Mischief and Mayhem. Even the name of the band <laughs> resonates with this painting, which I'm staring at on my computer as we're talking. But it's the sec, I believe it's the second track on the album. It's called Sand Dipper. And it creates a sort of chaotic, abstract, overwhelming world where there are little bits of sense in a kind of senseless environment. And what I direct, the, the chart of this song is basically 
a melody. And I play the melody, which is, a sand dipper is actually a bird. It's like a bird flitting through something in a kind of pre-hurricane um, storm of wind and objects flying through. And the band gets to do all that. The band gets to create an environment that can or cannot relate to me. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they land on one of the notes of my melody and they nail it down, but then they flit off again. That, I think, sounds like what the sky looks like in this painting. And it feels like the unanswerable question that Leakawan is asking as he's looking up into the world right before he dies. Here's Sand Dipper, played in full.
Do you think of the piece as narrative? No, it's it's a situation and it's an environment. I, I would say it does develop. It starts small. It starts with the melody and a little bit of an environment. And then things get much more chaotic. And they expand from that into a, a larger space and a more dangerous environment, a more unpredictable environment. After playing the melody a couple times, I drop out and we're just living in the world of Nels Klein playing sounds on guitar and textures and Jim Black, you know, dropping little bombs here and there and Todd Sikafus on bass. So Jim Black's playing drums. Todd Sikafus is sometimes joining in the mischief that Jim Black is doing, sometimes throwing in unpredictable lines. And it sort of takes off from there. So there, I guess there is a narrative. There's not a narrative in the way that there is a narrative in songs with melodies and with clear developments, but there's kind of no reining it in, in the song. I look at works of art, as I look at, at, I, we look at works of art as we listen to works of music at very different times, very different moods, very different ways. I generally like them separate, um, or if it's, it may be music as background as I read and look, or I may imagine sounds as I look, but no, it's not something I do regularly not something I do regularly. I do enjoy consciously thinking about what music, how is the style of a given painting reflected or is it reflected in the music of the time? And then crossing, then going diachronic. And just as I'm doing with the Greco and why I was excited to talk about it or talk with you about it is, uh, it is something where I see these uh, more telling analogies or relationships to music that I that I love. So what advice would you give to someone if, if someone came to you and said, I really would love to appreciate music more? What advice do you give to someone that would help them open themselves up to music? It's uh, exposure. It's a language. Go out and see music. Take an hour at night and put on a recording and lay down, turn off your phone and listen to it. Go out to see music with your friends, with your husband, with your kids. And if it's unpleasant, go again. <laughs> it is the experience with music that you have to kind of slow down and, and listen to it. And, you know, the beautiful thing about the language of music is that we all speak it and we all can understand it. It's not like French or some other language that we don't know. You just have to let it speak to you. Is that different or similar 
to the advice you'd give to someone who wanted to appreciate visual art more? I think it's the same. I think you just go and you feel your feelings and you keep going and trust that this is an important part of life. One of the things I, I experienced that day at the National Gallery was that I was seeing a lot of paintings I've seen before, but another time. And I've seen some of these paintings since I was little. You know, we used to go to museums when I was a kid and I'd be dragged through the museum and maybe there'd be a couple things I'd like and maybe I'd enjoy it for the first 30 minutes, but my mom would drag us through for hours. And all I'd remember leaving was that my feet hurt and I was hungry and why weren't there more benches? And uh, my mother was so annoying, you know? But then I went again and she did it again and again and again and again. And by the time I was actually able to do it on my own, I'd do it. And, and sometimes it was that I thought I would get something out of it, not just that I wanted to go. And that day at the National Gallery, I... I was just so grateful that I had these paintings in my life that I could revisit. And, you know, it was like visiting relatives. Of course, I saw a lot of paintings that I'd never seen before, but some of these familiar ones were, were so kind of comforting, I guess. And I returned to a place, sort of like a family, um, you know, photo book or something. So I guess it's just go, go and see it and feel what you feel when you're there. Thanks so much to Jenny Scheinman for joining us. Jenny performed her original work, Canapolis, A Moving Portrait, which she mentioned in her interview at the National Gallery of Art on May 22nd, 2016. She returned with a different group to perform her album, Parlor Game, at the National Gallery on November 3rd, 2018. Sound Thoughts on Art is a production of the National Gallery of Art's music department. The show was created by Danielle Hahn, the National Gallery of Art's head of music programs, and it was mixed and produced by Maura Curry. To support the show, share Sound Thoughts on Art, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Celeste Headley. Until we meet again, be well. <laughs>